You're listening to a sermon from River City Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. For more gospel-centered resources and to learn about our church, visit www.rivercitympls.com. I'm going to welcome you back to your seats. If you want to start heading back to seats, grab last coffee or pastries. Feel free to grab a Bible on your way back and open up to Matthew 28. We're going to be in verses 18 through 20. So Matthew 28, 18 through 20. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to grab one of those hard black back or hard back black Bibles that are sitting on the table. Uh, that's our gift to you. Feel free to take that home. Uh, we want you to have a copy of God's Word, so feel free to grab that. Again, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Uh, you're on page 835 if you're using one of those pew Bibles. Today is a mission theme Sunday, as we've talked about, and we want to talk about why, why this matters to us so much. Why do we invest in partnerships within our city to care for the needs of people? Why do we invest 20% of every dollar given to partner with missionaries around the world, both here in the Twin Cities and to the least reached peoples? Why does this matter? And we're going to talk in particular about our value of near and far. This is one of our values because the gospel compels us toward those who are near and propels us toward those who are far. And if you are a Christian, if you follow Jesus, then you are part of a movement that is advancing. And here's what I know. Even as I make that statement, that can be understood in many different ways. Some will hear it and think of colonialism. Others will think of ministries of mercy. And still others will think that the church is responsible to usher in the kingdom through our own holiness. And none of these fully encompass the ways that God's kingdom is advancing. And some of them are just simply not consistent with Jesus' teaching at all. And so my goal today is to help give a more holistic understanding of how God's kingdom is advancing in the world and how we are meant to participate in that work. Today, the text that we've chosen is Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's been known by many as the Great Commission, some of Jesus' last words to his disciples. And I'm not going to break down every part of the text, but this missional mandate from Jesus will be the launching point for which we explore the rest of the sermon. And so if you have Matthew 28 open, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's word. I'll read and you can follow along. And when I finish reading, I will just say this phrase, this is the word of the Lord as an expression of what it is that we've just read, reminding ourselves. And you can respond with the words, thanks be to God, as an expression of our gratitude for his word. And so Matthew 28, 18 through 20 says this. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Go ahead, grab a seat. I'll pray for us. Father, we... Thank you for your word. We thank you for the gift it is to us as your people. And here now as we open it and we consider this mission you've called us to, that you've invited us to be a part of, would you help to make that clear for us? Would you, by the power of your spirit, open our eyes that we might behold the wondrous things that are found here in your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. David Livingston was a Scottish missionary and explorer who spent 33 years in the heart of Africa, and he enjoyed many different things, 
And he even at one point studied the sources of the Nile River. He was an explorer. He at times fought against the slave trade. He planted churches and he sought to reform the imperialistic impulses of English colonialism. He is celebrated by Africans and Britons alike, and he gave his life for the advancement of God's kingdom throughout the African content. And people would often talk about the sacrifice that he had made in spending so much time away from home. And in response, what he said, uh, he once remarked, it is emphatically no sacrifice. Say, rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger now and then with a foregoing of the common conveniences and charities of this life may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink. But let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall hereafter be revealed in and for us. I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not talk. When we remember the great sacrifice which he made, who left his father's throne on high, to give himself for us. And here's why I start with this quote. It is not to make you all feel guilty because you're not doing frontier missions like David Livingston. That is not why I bring up that quote. But to help us see that our motivation for the work should be the same as his because God made the ultimate sacrifice in sending his son for the mission. Any sacrifice we make is worthwhile, whether it is the risk of an awkward conversation the pain of a financial gift to support the work, or the inconvenience that is often required to make the relational investments that are necessary. Our passage begins with the words of Jesus in verse 18, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. Jesus here is basing his call to make disciples on his authority which he has proven by dying in our place and in which he's been vindicated as the king by rising from the dead. But God's kingdom does not advance like the kingdoms of this world. And many of Jesus' disciples thought that the kingdom was going to be a, or take place in this physical realm and that it would be a political movement right here on earth that through Jesus' leadership, he was going to lead an army that would overthrow the Romans. And at several points, Jesus had to correct them to help them see that God's kingdom is about God's reign, not expressed in the physical realm, but primarily through the proclamation and the activity of Jesus in the world. And that same proclamation and activity is what we as his followers carry on after he has died and rose again. However, humans, we are so prone to repeat past mistakes and throughout throughout history, the advancement of the gospel has often been confused with the expansion of political movements. This happened under the Roman Empire with the leadership of Constantine. It happened in the colonial movements as Europeans explored the world. And it still happens today when we mistakenly conflate American influence in the world with Christian influence in the world. You see how complicated this can become sometimes, how many errors we are prone to make. And my goal in this sermon is to help us see five different false dichotomies that exist when we talk about missions and kingdom advancement. Before I do that, I do want us to see that the kingdom is an advancing kingdom. God's kingdom is one that is meant to advance. However, it does not advance in the ways that the world often thinks. The one who died and rose again, Jesus, has been given all authority, power, and dominion, and he said to his followers, go and make disciples. Let them know that the king has come. The king they've always longed for has arrived. He is here 
You can be part of this kingdom. You can join his family. You can enjoy all the privileges as part of the kingdom and participate in the responsibilities of the work in his kingdom. One of the primary ways that Jesus taught about the kingdom where we see this advancement was through parables. Luke chapter 13, verses 20 through 21 is an example where Jesus says, to what shall I compare the kingdom of God? Is it like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened? This is one of Jesus's simpler parables. In the same way that leaven begins to, or as just a small portion of the flour, it eventually spreads itself out working its way through the flower, eventually having a significant impact despite its simple and small beginnings. Just before this, Jesus told the parable of a mustard seed, which starts as just a small grain, but eventually grows into the largest of garden plants, so big that birds can nest in it. And like the kingdom, the yeast does not take over the bread by force, but slowly works its way through the flower. The seed does not take over the garden in an instant, but slowly grows into a mustard tree. One scholar commented on these parables. He said, the kingdom is very often today like a mustard seed, is it not? A small a thing as Sister Teresa's ministry to the dying, or Charles Colson's prison fellowship. Both began ever so modestly with faith in God. God is still making new beginnings. God is still planting seeds around the world. Respect the infinitude of the little. Obsession with size is obscene, end quote. And let me add to that statement, obsession with power and influence is obscene because so often that is what we are after when we are after greater size. If you follow Jesus, you are part of a kingdom that is advancing and you have a role to play in its advancement but it's not always advancing in the ways you think. And you may not have the role that you thought. Here's the message of the sermon for us. God's kingdom is advancing in ways that are as subtle as they are significant. As citizens of his kingdom, we have a part in the work. And so for the rest of the sermon, I want to address five different false dichotomies to this mission hopefully correcting some false assumptions that we all can have at times. My goal is that River City would have a vision of what I would call a balanced mission. And when I say false dichotomies, I'm talking about taking two different aspects of something and trying to position them in opposition to each other as if we can only choose one or the other. This is a logical fallacy, often used to win an argument, often to attack an opponent, And unfortunately, these false dichotomies, they show up far too often when we talk about life in the kingdom of God. And in the realm of mission, there are many that exist, but we'll address five today. So the first is near or far, positioned against one another as one of two options. We want a balanced understanding in the scope of our mission. It is not just here or near or far, but it is everywhere, near and far. The scope of God's mission is the entire world. And in our text today, Jesus says to make disciples of all nations. The word for nations here is ethne. Jesus is referring to ethnic groups or people groups, which are distinguished by different languages and cultures, such as the Kurdish or Arab people in Middle East. He is not referring to nation states, which are distinguished by political boundaries, such as Syria or Turkey. This is where the far comes from in our value. Whether the distance is measured in miles or it is measured in cultural difference, 
Jesus wants us to be people who help to bring the good news to every language, culture, and nation to hear that gospel. Because we believe that Jesus brings life, he is the remedy to our biggest problems, the antidote to our anxieties, rest for the weary, and the answer to our deepest longings. He is the way to our true home, and God desires that all would hear this good news and that they would know that Jesus came to reconcile what has been broken. That is why our church partners with several missionaries around the world, working in frontier contexts among ethnic peoples who would otherwise have little to no opportunity to hear about why Jesus came. And and here's what can sometimes happen, though. People who care deeply about frontier missions can think that they need to emphasize the far by minimizing the near but we don't believe you have to choose between them. It is a false dichotomy to suggest that the way to increase the value of one is to diminish the importance of the other. When Jesus said, go and make disciples, he didn't mean once you get to where you're going, then start making disciples. But as you go, all along the way, make disciples of all nations. And here's what we believe, that God calls his people to have a kingdom impact wherever they go. And that means anywhere that God's people live, anywhere that we inhabit, we should be having a kingdom impact on those with whom we live in close proximity, which means that we care about the person across the street and people around the world. We believe God's mission is to those who are near and to people who are far. God does not want us to choose between them which is why we so often talk about our collective witness to our neighbors here in Northeast and why we partner with missionaries like the Thyrans who are working with at-risk teens in one of our inner ring suburbs and why we work with people like the Sheldons who have spent half a century working among one of the most unique language groups in the world right in the heart of the Amazon rainforest. Having a balanced mission together means that we are balanced in our scope, near and far. The second false dichotomy that people like to create is between a come and see or a go and tell mindset. Some have labeled these as attractional versus missional. The come and see strategy emerged out of at least two movements throughout history, although many more. One of them is coming out of the tradition from the Old Testament in which people needed to come to the land of Israel to hear about the creator God. In particular, the temple in Jerusalem was the epicenter of religious life. Sometimes we can just replace that with the church gathering. People have to come here to hear. People in the Old Testament would come from all over the world to hear about God. Famously, the Queen of Sheba traveled a great distance to visit with King Solomon, to see his wealth, to hear his wisdom, to learn about the God that he worshipped. And our contemporary come-and-see strategy is more closely linked to the tent revivals of early American history in which people would bring neighbors, family, and friends to a a revival that was happening in their region. And we should not discount the work that God's Spirit did through that over history, but from a human perspective, especially under the influence of men like Charles Finney and the Second Great Awakening, humans started to try and control all the conditions that they could in these environments. The most impactful music, the most demonstrative environments, the most charismatic preachers, The mindset was that if you wanted your friend to know God, you brought them to a revival where the professional Christians would present the gospel. And if you are observant, you can see how many evangelical movements in recent history have modeled their Sunday service on tent revivals. 
And it can be easy for us to all think that the gospel is better off coming from the mouth of a professional, but that fails to see how God made us all ministers of reconciliation. We all carry the good news of Jesus with us every day. And God never meant for the mission to be for the professionals only. We want you to see the value that you have, the role that you play in the lives of your loved ones. In response to that mindset of a come and see, we saw the rise of the missional movement in the early 2000s, which favored a go and tell strategy. And this was an important corrective. It was based on the ministry models of Jesus in many ways. The incarnation of Jesus is a go and tell strategy. He took on human flesh. He brought the good news of the gospel and ultimately became the good news of the gospel through his death and and resurrection. However, Jesus did not disparage the crowds when they came to see and hear what he was doing. At one point, he crossed a lake to get some rest, and he found a massive crowd on the other side. They had come a great distance, and there they were. So Jesus looked at them with compassion because they were helpless and harassed like sheep without a shepherd. And so he taught them about the kingdom, and he fed them. Here at River City, we want to be balanced in our strategy. We are trying to create relational environments that you can invite someone to come and see the good news of the gospel. When I preach, I am not only thinking about our church members, but I'm also intentionally thinking about the people who are not here, people whom you may want to invite. I'm speaking to the person that is not yet in the room so that if you invite them, you will know that they will be welcomed. We are going to tie blankets at the end of the month, as it was mentioned, in partnership with the Thyrens. We've intentionally planned it in such a way you can create a, come invite a friend so that you can serve alongside of them. However, we will never minimize the role that you play in the life of your friend. And we will call you to take responsibility for the ministry that God has called you to and has given you. We are all called to go and tell others about the good news of Jesus as we make disciples of all nations. The third dichotomy that we reject is the idea that we must either confront culture or we need to conform to culture. Here we believe in what we call balanced contextualization, and here's what that means. The message of the gospel is meant to take on the forms and the contours of every culture that it enters. That's what contextualization is. Now, that does not mean that the message of the gospel does not transcend culture. It does. However, every time we communicate it, it needs to be communicated in the language and the culture of the people to whom it is directed. Take, for example, language itself. The Bible was originally written in Greek and in Hebrew, but we just read it in English. At some point in time, someone needed to make a decision about how we help us understand it in English. If, we were to, if I was to go to China to share about the gospel, I would be most effective if I learned Mandarin or Cantonese or one of the other hundreds of dialects that are spoken there. Whenever I make a decision about what words I will use, what language I will speak, I make a decision about contextualization. And that is what Paul is talking about, for example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, when he says that he will become like one who is under the law to win those under the law, or like one who is weak to win those who are weak. He will become all things to all people so that the message of the gospel would become clear. We want to work hard to make it clear. In this way, we will intentionally contextualize the gospel when we speak, but never in a way that conforms to culture and compromises its core message. Because Paul also says in the same letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the gospel confronts the Greeks because they've relied on their wisdom. And the gospel confronts the Jews because they've relied on their strength. It is not a decision between conforming or confronting. The gospel, when faithfully preached, must do both. 
When it enters a culture, it confronts distortions and injustices. It reveals oppressive idols for what they are, and it helps to make sense of all the cultural storylines that can only be resolved in Jesus. So as I come back to this concept of language to further illustrate this, I want to talk about a man named Laman Sani. He's a Muslim background Christian, born and raised in Gambia, Africa, and eventually became a distinguished professor at Yale University. He did extensive research in world Christianity and the impact of missionaries. And what he found was that as Christianity moved from Western countries to places like Africa, missionaries realized how important language was going to be if they were going to communicate the message of the gospel clearly. A faithful contextualization was going to require translation and cultural understanding. And as a result, the focus became more about Bible translation than about transferring the values of what he called an ascendant West. He wrote this at one point, and I'll begin quote, the translation role of missionaries cast them as unwitting allies to mother tongue speakers and as reluctant opponents of colonial domination. What he found through his research is that the reason so many of the indigenous languages of Africa still exist today is because of missionaries. Globalization and the secular West would have swallowed up so much of African culture. But through the balanced contextualization of the message of the gospel, it has preserved languages and cultures throughout the world, confronted injustice, and sought to meet practical needs through community development. So whether we're doing balanced contextualization to the modern cities here in America, like here in Northeast Minneapolis, or we are partnering with missionaries doing Bible translation and church planting around the world, we do not need to fall prey to the false dichotomy of either confronting or conforming to culture. We can have balanced contextualization in our work. The fourth dichotomy is based on the idea that we need to choose between the proclamation of the gospel or the embodiment of the gospel, between evangelism or ministries of mercy. This is another unnecessary choice that can off, or in many ways can be traced to historical movements. In the life of Jesus, these things are never separated. On numerous occasions, the gospel writers would summarize his ministry in the same sort of way that Matthew does in Matthew 4, 23. He said this of Jesus, He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. This is proclamation. And healing every disease and every affliction among the people. This is the embodiment of the gospel, caring for the needs of people. Why do we so often separate what Jesus never saw as separate? At some point in history, some people started to think that ministries of mercy were not worth the time or energy. They would think to themselves, why give someone a warm meal if they're going to end up in hell because they don't want to convert to Jesus? Then I'll go find someone else who does. This was the mindset that would keep them from doing that. And that is somehow Christians started to see the embodiment of the gospel as a distraction from it. And this is so contrary to the ministry of Jesus. In doing so, we neglect the words of Jesus when we see that feeding and clothing the least of his brothers and sisters was like feeding and clothing him. Or when he said that the greatest commandment was to love God and love your neighbor. Here in Matthew 28, he says to make disciples who will obey what I have commanded. That requires the embodiment of the gospel as much as the proclamation of it. There has risen another segment of Christianity in the opposite direction that wants to embody kingdom values such as love of neighbor, humility, justice, and mercy, but somehow thinks we can have the kingdom without the king. The good news of the kingdom is not good news apart from Jesus. 
It is because the king has arrived who brings peace where there was discord, who repairs what was broken. That is why the kingdom is good news. When we think about our work in the area of missions, whether locally or globally, near or far, it will involve both proclamation of the gospel and the embodiment of it through ministries of mercy. In this way, we want to be balanced in our work together. The final dichotomy we'll talk about involves questions about our motivation for the mission. Even though we might acknowledge that it is God's mission to fulfill, we can start to act as though we are the ones who must complete the work, as if we will usher in the kingdom on our own through our own holiness or our own initiatives. But let's remember in our text, Jesus gives the great commission because he has all authority. Therefore, go make disciples. And he ends with the promise that he is with us in the work. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Even as he is sending out his disciples to do their part in the mission, he's reminding them that he is with them. So here is the dichotomy that we find ourselves in between this question of with or sent. As followers of Jesus, we believe it is both. We are with Jesus and we are sent by Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, Jesus calls his disciples to be with him so that he might send them out. Here in Matthew 28, even as he is sending them out to make disciples, he's reminding them that he is with them. In John's gospel, as Jesus prays to the Father, he says that even as the Father and the Son are one, so we are now one with them. And just as the Father has sent the Son, so now the Son is sending his followers. Jesus never separates these two. He does not send us without calling us to be with him. As David Livingston said, I never made a sacrifice. Of this we ought not to talk. When we remember the great sacrifice which he made who left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Jesus left his heavenly home so that he could come to be with us. He was sent by the father to fulfill the mission and for a brief time he experienced separation from the father for on our behalf so that we could be united with him. And here's what we can start to think, that our ability to be with Jesus is contingent upon our ability to fulfill his mission. Here's what so often happens when even pastors give sermons on missions. We will try to motivate out of guilt, and pastors can get very good at making people feel guilty, but shame on me if I try to motivate you out of guilt. That is not what God does. David Livingston is not motivated because he feels guilty, but because he is compelled by Christ's love, the one who made the ultimate sacrifice on his behalf. If I try to motivate you out of guilt— to make you feel bad about the poor in our community that you are neglecting or to pull on your heartstrings about the peoples of the world that have little to no access for the gospel, to subtly communicate that you are failing at the mission and that God's love is contingent upon your ability to follow through. If that's my strategy, that motivation is manipulative. It has no staying power. It is still ultimately just about us and it is wearisome as it is burdensome. And that is a motivation that will never work. And it's consistent in some ways with the mentality that Jesus responds to with the religious leaders because of their rules and regulations in Matthew 23, 15, when he says, for you travel across sea and land to make a single convert. And when he becomes a convert, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. We are not sent by Jesus to convert people to religion or to prove that we deserve to be with him. We are not sent to fulfill the obligations of a new law or a new religion. We are sent because the one who was ultimately sent by the Father came to be with us. 
He fulfilled all the obligations of our mission. He was sent first so that in our mission, we have nothing to prove. Our motivation flows from Jesus's promise to be with us. We are not in this mission alone, and we do not need to choose between God's presence and God's mission. Jesus is as much with us when we are in this room singing together as he is when we are digging wells for fresh water in Africa. And he is as much with us when we are showing hospitality to our neighbor as when we are kneeling beside our bed to pray. When we separate the two, we not only make the mission a burden, we also create dead religion in our gatherings. It is not with or sent. It is with and sent. We are balanced in our motivation. And if you are a follower of Jesus, then you are part of a kingdom that is advancing and you have a role to play. But the kingdom doesn't advance like the kingdoms of this world. It is as subtle as it is significant. And at River City, we want to be balanced in our mission. We do not want to fall prey to these false dichotomies that get thrown around. We are called to be part of the mission in the everyday stuff of life. And sometimes it will be as simple as raking our neighbor's leaves. And other times it will be as radical as spending our life far away from home. No one is exempt. And we all have the joy and the privilege of joining Jesus in the work to renew weary lives. Thank you for listening to this sermon from River City Church. If you found this resource helpful, we encourage you to share it with your friends and family. We exist to see weary lives renewed through relationship with Jesus in the Twin Cities and beyond.